rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonny. I'll not forget that happy night among the rigs with Annie. Pod boys and spooky boys and pod boys are scary. That's right. You're listening to America's Most Heathen Podcast, The Pod People. <laughs> I'm Matisse Van Rossum, the salmon of knowledge. Fuck! <laughs> Fuck, that was mine. Uh, I, I'm Ben Sheets, and I'm protected by the ejaculation of serpents. There you go. <laughs> nice. nice recovery. Hello, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm a phallic symbol. <laughs> Well, today on The Pod People, we are celebrating a very special time. It's a time of death and rebirth. It's the death of our fourth year as a podcast and the birth of our fifth year as a podcast. That's right. It's our podversary. And as is tradition, as is ritual, you might say. We're coming at you with part one of an original versus remake. And this year, uh, as I'm sure you're aware at this point from uh, seeing the, the title of this episode in your podcatcher, it's The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. We're doing The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1973 original Wicker Man, directed by Robin Hardy and starring Edward Woodward, Christopher Lee, Diane Salento, and Britt Eklund. You'll have to come back next week for the uh, the Nicolas Cage remake, but we'll, we'll talk about that in its due time, um, because that film would not exist without this one. Two very, very different films. <laughs> Two very different films that I love for very different yes. reasons. And I'm excited to find out the differences. <laughs> um, I, I honestly feel like this movie is such a uh, sort of niche cult classic that a lot of people may not even know that the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man was based on a, a previous film, but it sure was, and here it is. This is one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, just yet another reason that I think the 70s were the best decade for horror, if not the best decade for film in general. But we'll we'll get into the nitty-gritty. As always, we have to check in first... With baby, Cleveland. Oh shit! I'm baby. You're baby. Oh my god. What else is again? Me? Yeah, <laughs> baby again. Um, yeah, I, I'm baby again. And this is your first time seeing the Wicker Man. What it, did you know before seeing it? Well, before we uh, we plugged into the old the old VHS player and hit play, uh, I think I had mentioned that uh, what I knew about this movie was it's on an island. It involves some pagan rituals, including a Wicker Man. Um, and someone, like, hunting down, like, a girl, uh, I was thinking maybe their daughter or something, and, uh, they get boint. They get, they get boint alive. That's a weird way of saying burnt. And, <laughs> and then, uh, that was about it. That's, that's what I knew. And, uh, oh, and I, I knew that one of the movies involved violence against women or something because scenes had been removed from one of them or something I had heard in my Tune periphery. back next week. <laughs> yeah, for more of that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember too much of that in this one. I mean, it's implied, but even still. 
and uh, that's it. That's all I knew. So I was quite pleased. I did not know that Christopher Lee was in this movie. It, possibly at some point I had, I had heard that fact or whatever, but just, you know, in passing, it didn't stick. So I was very hype when the opening credits rolled and I saw his name because I'm a big Christopher Lee fan. Did you expect this to be a musical? Um, I guess it is. It is. It I, totally is. I, I guess it is a musical. Um, it's the kind of musical that I actually like because I uh, we've talked about it on the podcast because Ben and I did a whole episode on horror musicals, some of which I, I did enjoy. But um, this is the the kind of musical I like in the sense that the music, the singing is narratively motivated. It isn't just people bursting out into song because it's a musical. You know, see our, our our discussion of like Phantom of the Paradise and stuff like that. Uh, I I can appreciate a musical when there's a reason for folks to be singing, and this is that. Uh, and it's got some absolute bops in it because all the songs are about fucking, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, I put her hand upon her knee, my hand upon her, not her hand. That would be confusing. But my hand upon her knee and. She said, get would some you D. Like, would you like to see? Yeah, would you like to see? That's right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah this is a very horny movie. It's a very horny movie. Um, I, uh, I liked that about it. I like a good horny romp, um, especially a horny romp from the 70s. I think no one does horny like the 70s. Yeah, it's a treat. I, I, think, I think that uh, some of these songs were like, the lyrics are kind of hidden uh, in like sing songiness and like they're veiled with implicate like or I shouldn't say veiled, I should say fucking dripping with implication. But I find it to be way more lewd than like your 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 miscellaneous like rap song or whatever. Like I, I think that these like classic songs are way hornier if we're being real. Well, yeah, because intentionally, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. To talk about the the sexuality of the film in general, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, you know, it is it is a '70s film, which was uh, sort of continuing on the era of like free love in the late '60s, sexual liberation. Um, this is a British production. Uh, it's set in Scotland, and sort of uh, it it was intentionally designed to be representative of a more uh, sort of liberated sexuality juxtaposed with the protagonist, Sergeant Howie, who is a... Uh, more a, like Sergeant Buzzkill. Yeah, right. <laughs> who is the least fun man who has ever existed. Uh, <laughs> but he's sort of meant to represent the sort of repression of, like, Great Britain, uh, which was still very strong uh, in in this era, and uh, the Brits in the in the Victorian era were like obviously extremely puritanical and prudish, and uh, so for him to go to this uh, this mysterious like pagan island where everybody is like very open sexually, and they're just kind of like everyone's singing about how horny they are for the landlord's daughter. It's all about rebirth and new life and very progressive ideas of sexuality. Um, I think it's interesting that, that the, the quote-unquote hero of this movie uh, is, is so unlikable. Uh, I think his character is great, uh, and I think uh, Edward yes. Woodward uh, mm -hmm. plays him extremely well. And that distinction, He's, it's important to yeah, make that distinction. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's impressive that uh, as obnoxious as our character is, I was still 
on the edge of my seat towards the end of the film. The tension is not undercut by it. No, and that's that's impressive. Well, the thing is, like much like cannibal movies, uh, this film you know has a group of people who aren't sadistic or evil per se. But that makes it all the more unsettling mm-hmm. because what they are doing is being done so matter-of-factly. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing yeah, like in the world is wrong. It's normal for them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think, like, the the, the slow reveal of uh, of information in this movie is is really good because, you know, there's, there's the mystery about, like, the missing girl who nobody on the island seems to know. And, you know, from a from a viewer's perspective, like, we kind of have some insight into what's going on, but that's not really what it's about. It It's sort of like the, the slow transition into madness isn't really the right word, but away from the, the normalcy that we're presented with at the very beginning, or what is normal to Sergeant Howie, and how that kind of unravels over time and by the end becomes really sinister i think i like that this movie starts and finishes with a sacrament absolutely well we'll talk about we'll definitely talk about the ending but um the the beginning starts with howie in in church um you know singing a hymn and then doing a a reading about take eat this is my body which is given unto you do so in remembrance of me. Communion, yeah. So yeah. we we know that he is a we know from the beginning that he is a very devout Christian. And so to be presented with this island that he learns, you know, relatively quickly is uh as as he calls them heathen. It's a fish out of water story to say the least. Just like Captain America. Yeah, just like Captain America, exactly. (laughs) I couldn't have put it better myself. I think what's kind of interesting, too, at least for me about this movie, is that, like, at least in this day and age, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a religious person by any means. So, like, it's hard to to identify with Howie in that regard. Like, these people seem, like good folks you know like they're committing what he believes is like blasphemy you know there's no priests or or ministers on the island you know their their churchyard isn't consecrated they're teaching fucking in it they're they're fucking in it yeah they're (laughs) they're teaching pagan religion in school talking about the maypole representing the phallus and whatnot and he is just like absolutely mortified by all of this like so much of this movie is him being so mad that everybody else is having a good time but like that's the thing everybody is having a good time they all seem pretty normal you know and depending on what your your definition of normal is like he seems like the the backwards one you know at least at least to me it's tricky because like from the viewer's perspective it's pretty obvious from the beginning that something nefarious is going on on this island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we are viewing it through that lens, you know, of like these people probably murdered a kid. So the gregariousness, these large orgies, all of those those things have uh, a layer of maliciousness to them. Mm. And, and that makes it a little bit trickier for me to like really sit on one side or the other. But I I do see how this can act as almost like an allegory for, like, the death of 
the old ways. Which is cool because also it's sort of embracing the even older ways. Well, so, yeah, yeah, it's sort of the way that it's come that it comes back around because, like, I I think that in the seventies, like in the time this movie was released, the idea of pagan beliefs was still kind of more broadly shunned than it is now. Maybe taboo. it's yeah, definitely more taboo. Yeah, that that's a good word for it. And you know, in in the twenty first century. There's obviously still plenty of of religious you know people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in in a more secular world, we're sort of brought up to be less judgmental of beliefs that don't necessarily correspond with our own. You know, for the most part. So in a way, you're right. Like in this movie, they talk about like the old gods, the old ways, the pagan ways, but through the lens of like the 21st century, like really strict, devout Christianity is kind of uh, antiquated as well to a degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're almost as disconnected from it. For me, I guess less so than y'all. I mean, I guess then to a degree. Yeah. Um, Kind of, I'm kind of curious to hear about that from your 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 end, but yeah, for y'all, me, y'all grew up pretty Christian. Um, I did not. Yeah, like I I went to Episcopal church, so like I I was raised Episcopalian, so I I was I'm very used to like you know taking the sacrament and and all of those things. So at the beginning of the film, you know, I was like saying saying along with the words, I was largely able to to relate with the protagonist in that sense, L- less so in just the the amount of like rage he felt at the the different people living their different lives. I love, there's a couple of scenes of him, uh, of him like going to bed at night in the inn while like everybody's still up and singing and like various like boys or young men are like being sent to, to bang the landlord's daughter. And he's just like, he's in bed, just like so fucking mad, just like trying to cover his ears and sleep. (laughs) Just like everybody, everybody's just like having a good carefree time. And my, my man's just like, up in his room just absolutely fuming about everybody having fun (laughs) yeah well his whole belief system is you know no sex until yes after marriage because marriage is a pure communion um and man's the 40 year old virgin exactly and i really love that scene where they're just sending dudes up to bang Mm -hmm. her because it's really unsettling how they're all uh, all of the people in the bar down below the green, the green man, man the green man, yeah. green man. Uh, they're all like looking up and singing and playing music mm-hmm. at the floor above, very well, intentionally. Because for them, it is it's ritual. You know, it's not just banging because it's fun. It's about fertility. Well, it's part of their their belief system. This this film takes place over a couple of days, you know, leading up to May Day, which is the starting of the of the harvest season or not the harvest season, but the sowing season to bring new life and crops and stuff. And so they associate that with uh human fertility as well. You know, the the two go hand in hand. So sending boys to the landlord's daughter to sleep with her it's it's about you know it's about the ritual the same way that Howie kneels at his bed and says his prayers before he goes to sleep the whole film is is like a push and pull between like two very disparate belief systems 
Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about how that's that's foreshadowed or how that's that's introduced. Our character, you know, he gets to the island. You know, he's been given a report that there's a missing girl there. He's received an anonymous letter from the island that a young girl, Rowan Morrison, has been missing for several months. It was addressed specifically to him. Nobody signed it, but it included a picture. So he's come to the island to investigate. Yes. So um, after some precursory looking around, um, he has to stay the, stay the night at the inn. He goes in to the inn and uh, is introduced to the landlord and then subsequently the daughter. And when the daughter comes out, a guy starts singing and he starts singging like an old folk t- song that I'd, I'd actually heard before. Maybe in reference to this film, I don't know. It's a body song about the landlord's daughter that's, you know, not not too far from, like, any old, like, wailing song or anything else that's pretty body. We all love to get our dicks hard for the landlord's daughter. And- but, but but that those are the lyrics, which yeah. is wild, like, mm-hmm. when you don't have the context for the, the, these what these people believe in. Because they look like just normal, like, you know, like, Scotsmen. Like, they look like just, like, normal Scotsmen in a tavern. And so when they start this, singing... Yeah, at this point, the, the pagan belief system has not yeah, quite been established. Like, and the, yeah. there's a line, like, blah, blah, the landlord's daughter, the landlord's daughter, and, like, all the men stand at attention, and a guy, like, brings his fist out and giggles. Like, and they all, they're all giggling about it. Like, clearly, like, talking about, like, how fucking hard they're gonna get. And, well, and it's, like... Well, one straight up starts, like, dry-humping her. Yeah! And, and like, and, like, the, the, the landlord's right there, you know? Like, and, and so it's... Without that conscious, like, yo, what the fuck is going on? Why is he cool with this? Yeah, like, well, that's, that, yeah, it's, it's unsettling. It's mm-hmm. weird because, like, he's laughing about it, but more importantly, she's laughing. Yeah, she's having a great time. She's, I mean, dan- like, she's dancing around and having fun and laughing, and, like, n- she does not seem put off by this at all. Yep. That's one of the first indications that, like, there's something strange going on here, at least other than, like, as soon as he gets to the island, he starts showing the the people who gather at the harbor, like, the picture, and they're all like, oh, yeah, no, we haven't seen this girl. She's not from here. We don't know her. Like, there's, there's no one here by that name. Well, they do say that there is someone there by that name. Well— Right off the bat. They say—he says that, uh, like, oh, her mother, uh, May Morrison, and they're like, oh, yeah, we know May. Yeah, she runs the post office or whatever, but that's not her daughter— uh, you know, and then he goes to see her and she's like, oh yeah, that's not my daughter. This is my daughter. But also like as he walks away from those men, we do kind of see them like giggling to each other. Like the film lets you, lets you in on it pretty early that like there's something not quite right going on here. Yeah. Well, like, just the way that the yeah. men address him when he gets off the plane, I mean, yeah. what is essentially the, the second scene. Well, they make it very clear right off the bat that like, Hey, we don't really like strangers here. Yeah. You know? Well, before even like, they even yeah. bring the boat out to him, they're just like, "Hey, we don't, you know, like." It's no like this. Is pri- they say this is private property. Like he lands in his little seaplane. I love that scene because he's like using his the megaphone from the seaplane to like shout at them across like the harbor, and they're like shouting about it. Like, no, this is private property. You can't be here. He's like, "I'm a policeman. Look." He points at his <laughs> uniform. It's like. Oh, well, uh, you know, you got to get permission from Lord Summer Isle. That's what everybody keeps telling him on the while he's uh, doing his investigations. Like, well, uh, you know, you you, you got to get permission from Lord Summer Isle. He's like, nah, I'm the, I am the law. I don't have to get permission from anybody. Mm. Imagine Christopher Nolan in this role. 
I mean, not Christopher Nolan, sorry. Uh, Christopher, what the fuck is his name? Christopher Lee? No, the Batman. Oh, Christian, Christian Bale? Christian Bale, there we go. So they're both, yeah, okay. Well, well imagine Nicolas Cage in yeah. this role. That, that I'm excited <laughs> to find out about. What, what I mean, you know, just like the Batman, like, where is he? Where is he? Where's Rowan Morrison? Yeah, this, uh, this protagonist, like our, our protagonist, uh, Howie, whatever. Howie. Uh, he has a lot of like, uh, like knockoff Sean Connery vibes. He's he's very Sean Connery, uh, just in his general composure and look. Less less the suave womanizer vibes. He's got he's way too virginal for that. But uh, um, that or this was sort of the impression I was under at the beginning. Is like, who is this guy? Like, he's kind of like Sean Connery, but he doesn't. Um, but you know, by the end, I was very much so won over by the part. And I, I think that you couldn't have done it with Sean Connery. It wouldn't have worked because no, he's too suave. Like, yeah. This character has to be extremely uptight, pent up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely Re- repressed. Even yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's there's even a, a scene later the, in the the second night that he's there where like the Willow, the landlord's daughter, is like singing to him and like inviting him to come to her room and uh, and like he has a moment of temptation where he's like pressing himself against the wall. Like he's, this man is like so sexually repressed is like, Oh, I'm so horny, yeah, but I love Jesus more. He like almost opens the door and then yeah. shuts it. Mm-hmm. This guy, uh, no nut November so hard. It killed him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the thing, and you know, we can circle back around to this when we talk about the ending. But like, if he had gone to her, like, yep. would, would that have saved him? Mm-hmm. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a, yeah. uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I do feel like the need to reiterate that, like, though this character is very uptight and un- and unlikable, the performance is so good. He's so fucking good, and like. So much of what I think makes this movie amusing, because I do think a lot of it is funny, is, like, how unbelievably stuck up and, and like, uptight he is. I mean, the juxtaposition of him being really steamed and upset with all of the, the jovial, happy yeah. townsfolk is just great. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's funny. It's definitely really funny. Yeah, and they, they, they don't even try to make this character likable frankly like um well okay they do they do a little bit there's only really one sequence fairly early on when he gets to the post office and he sees that there is a young girl there and he tries to do the police officer thing of like talking to her about her drawing and like slowly like working on some questions and he's like helping her paint her yeah and he seems like really like and he seems earnestly like kind and good with kids and that's like a uh an aspect of protagonists especially in like these like romantic figures of men that like we we really don't see that much these days like 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 a family man kind of character and i really liked that i really liked that sequence um you know like uh just like kind of helping her paint the hair it was really good and um it it does give the character a a great virtuous quality mm-hmm. and it, well, it uh, believe that probably outside of his role as like a police officer you know when he's in his element like he probably is a good kind man yeah but you know as as the film progresses he believes that he is you know sort of stranded on an island of of pagans of you know heretics well what's so interesting to me about the little girl painting sequence is 
you know, as a virginal figure, he is almost identifying with her uh, where he can't later on with anyone else on the island, basically. And I think that's kind of the driver in some ways for him so set in trying to find this young girl that's missing is there's almost an element of him identifying with that the connection to the purity and and innocence Mm. yeah interesting it's cool read also it's where the the hair theme is established because he first goes in and he into the the post office and he sees like the little the little rabbits is what he calls them like on the uh decorating the countertop and she says no they're hair they're march hairs they're march hairs uh which is important uh and he should have uh, beware the eyes well, of March. When he when he asks like uh, when he asks her daughter, you know, uh, is like, oh, do you know Rowan? She's like, yeah, of course I do. He's like, well, where is she? He's like, oh, she's out in the fields or whatever. And he says, uh, well, do you think she'll be back in time for tea? And she says, silly hares don't have tea. And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, Rowan's a hare. She's a she's a March Hare, and uh, when when he you know exhumes the coffin, the coffin much later, later after he gets Lord Summerisle's uh, permission, well after he finds out that Rowan was there uh, and that they were all lying and that she is she is dead. More on that in a minute. Um, you know he he exhumes her grave and finds a, a dead hair in in her coffin in place of a body. That's a really interesting turn to me when at the school he sort of like forcibly takes the school ledger and sees like her name in it and is like is like you've all been lying to me. You do know Rowan. She is here. And the teacher's like, oh yeah. Well, we said that nobody by that name exists here because she doesn't exist any. More and then everybody just kind of all pivots is like, oh yeah, we we knew Rowan. She's just dead. That's all. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I love the sequence in the the school where he notices that there's an empty, the desk, empty desk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the reason he's suspicious that Rowan was in the the class. Um, and he opens the desk and there's a little beetle tied up to a nail it has a leg tied yeah one of its legs is tied and it's going in a circle and the little girl says something like yeah like crazy just by its own like force of will it's just gonna it always it always goes the same direction it never turns around until it ends up pinned to the nail very foreshadowing yes yes Uh, because that is that is what happens to Howie in this this entire film, as we find out. Um, yeah. We don't have to get into that quite yet, but yeah, he's he busy, is... He's busy hunting wabbits. Yep, he is... But lo and behold... He, he is the beetle tied to the nail. He is the wabbit. Moving in the same direction, never turning around until he ends up pinned to the nail. Um, yeah, just, that like is, that is a, just like Big Chungus. Just like Big Chungus. I like, too, how, like, visually that also kind of mirrors, like, the Maypole scene that's happening, mm-hmm. like, right outside oh, yeah. the school. Yeah. I didn't think about with, that. With, like, all of the oh. boys, you know, with taking the streamers and, like, running them around the Maypole. Frankly, like, they should be ashamed of themselves for copying Midsommar. They copied Midsommar. <laughs> they looked 40 years into the well, future. <laughs> we should talk about that, because this was a big influence on Midsommar, very clearly. A lot of, like, sort of pagan horror movies, like, the the language was written by this film. Um, like, yes. Midsommar took so many... Uh, 
so many uh, ideas from this, but not even just Midsummer. Y'all remember that movie Apostle that we did a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, that Apostle was very much a, a Wicker Man kind of deal. I'm, I'm man. Years later, I'm still a little bummed. I'm still a little like peeved uh, over over how good that movie almost was. Yeah, no, I yeah. feel you, man. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, that was almost a great movie. It was almost it was almost a good movie. <laughs> it but sucks. It wasn't. I hate that. I hate that. No, yeah. It, that me thinking about it you're so right like so many so many films oh this movie i like phrasing it that way if we're being earnest i i don't feel like midsummer just pulled from it wholesale uh i don't think it ripped off the wicker man. no 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 no. Mids- i think they um, very much so did its own thing with it and i think in many ways too like four or five decades later like uh still uh was uh prob- probably told a more cohesive tale Again, like standing on the shoulders of this giant. I will say, though, and we'll talk about this a little bit in next week's episode, but I think Midsummer is a little closer in spirit to the original Wicker Man than the Wicker Man remake, oddly enough. I would agree. Yeah, you know, definitely. I think (laughs) in terms of themes and ethos um, and tone. Yeah, I I agree with you, and we won't blow our load on this too early. Obviously, we can loop back to this when we talk about the Wicker Man remake, but I do think that the Wicker Man remake is a classic case of a remake that misses the point of the original, of its source material. It just happens to be the rare case where it does something so weird and different that it ends up being great for very different reasons can can we do a segment at the end of this where i guess a couple of things that like the the remake does wrong sure yeah okay i would (laughs) i would like to do that i would like to yeah like put down a few thoughts before i see it i mean obviously i know like the the meme sequence at the end but that's the thing that's been memed into oblivion but uh, everybody knows that yeah yeah um I think that this this original film is an interesting case because this is like the true definition of a cult classic in that it was wildly unsuccessful when it came out. The studio that produced it, British Lion, hated it. When it was finished, it was made on a shoestring budget. The majority of the actors, including Christopher Lee, worked for free. Uh, Oh, my God. They did not get paid. Um, And audiences didn't didn't know what to do with it. They didn't understand it. Audiences came out of this one being like, what the fuck is this? And it did not make a lot of money and it was not critically successful. But in the decades since, I think that it has, in the right circles, earned the acclaim that it deserves. Because I do think this is a truly, in my opinion, I think this is a truly great film. Um, I just think that it was kind of ahead of its time and I'm glad that it has earned you know, some some of the, the respect that it deserves uh, in in the years that followed because uh, it fucking rules. I love this movie, but at the same time, I'm not surprised that, like, people in 1970... No, they wouldn't know what to do with it. ...didn't jive with this. Yeah, I think um, it it would have the problem of, like, free-thinking free people probably would, wouldn't like it because um, it paints a lot of, like, 
free love sort of stuff as as villainous because um, I mean they, they do sacrifice him at the end like like sure. they're not they're not the good guys and uh, you know on the other hand like people like people who were staunchly religious sure as fuck wouldn't like this movie like for all the titties it's got in it and debauchery so well, yeah, and also because Howie is not saved at the end no like, yeah this is know, yeah exactly there's no happy ending like there's for there's our no, hero there's yeah there's no happy ending God does not intercede you know <laughs> so in in that regard like so yeah who who is the frankly who is the, the movie, movie for the movie for yeah, yeah I can I, mean, I can absolutely see people thinking that future generations and, really like, yeah which is what's so right, great about it right, and, exactly mm-hmm. and what I what I think speaks to the film's credit to is that Christopher Lee himself was on record as saying that of the over 300 films that he was in, this was his favorite and the one that he considers the best film. Um, and I... That gives I, me warm fuzzies. Like, he he <laughs> was... He believed in this movie so staunchly that, like, in the build-up to its release, like, he took every single press opportunity that he had like he was on like early morning uh like news programs in like iowa any opportunity he had to get on the radio on tv in print to like hype up this movie he took it and i think that like his conviction and his belief in this movie speaks to its quality better than just about anything else does yeah um because i mean fucking christopher lee is a legend and he's great in this movie yeah. we haven't talked about he's Lord. great we he's got the drip he's, he's got, yeah. got some great songs he's he's great as you mentioned cleveland he's great in everything but he's so good in this so uh, true he plays lord summer isle the the leader of the of the, the only the, character he can the, yeah. play like I remember them saying, yeah, like, who else would he be? Yeah, it's like when when someone's saying, like, like uh, the protagonist is like, I'm looking for Lord Summer Isle. I was like, that better be Christopher Lee. <laughs> or saying that, she's like, yeah. And you best believe it, fucking is. Because yeah. who else would he be? Yeah, I love how be. we're introduced to him by seeing him monologue to snails, essentially. Yeah, well, he at Howie's first night at the end, Christopher Lee is the one who comes and brings like the boy to be offered to to the landlord's daughter, who he himself calls the uh the the physical incarnation of aphrodite you know he he's the one who brings and like calls up to her in her window like here i've brought you this boy you know enjoy him and then yeah he has he has a a a monologue like watching snails copulate on a leaf like (laughs) while she's you know banging that dude i I gotta say though those like micro shots of snails are great Great. it looks so good on like the old like 35 millimeter them like catching the dew drops like the the light on them uh like the kind of deep dark rich shadows like it looks gorgeous like really really excellent shots and horrifying like yeah, kind like, of gross too because i mean like snails are kind of well, nasty the first shot of it too is is particularly strange because he talks about bringing the offering the boy goes upstairs and then we get the first shot of it like he looks down at the leaf and then we get a close-up shot and it's it unfurling from the shell yeah and at first you don't know what it is and like it's sort of alarming to me like like seeing this like weird like shape kind of form and realizing like oh it's a snail well it's it's kind of like it's kind of phallic too like the way that like the the body of the snail like comes out of the shell and the way that its 
high stalks like mm-hmm. grow out of its head like it's it 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 is very like visually pertinent i guess yeah no to, for sure what's yeah. happening um but at the same time also kind of wretched because you know snails are are gross and slimy and you know and this is all happening with like sergeant howie like disapprovingly like peeking out his window and being like what the fuck is going on here well i love it too because like in the scene i was just like are they they're cool with this police officer just like watching like all these like weird yeah, events go down they don't and of course like it's it's part of the film it's it's and it actually it does make sense later on but at the moment i was very much so like damn they're just they're cool with like him just like seeing all their their weird creepy acts and stuff. Well, I love that juxtaposition, right? Like the first like real sexual act we get is paired with this grotesque imagery of sex essentially. Mm. And that's also paired very closely with all the people uh having sex on the lawn. Yeah. And that really does pair with snails because you know it's outdoors in the wilderness just there's Shame, some sort shameless. of impurity yeah. to it. Well, that's the thing and is like there's Christianity has a very well developed sense of shame. Like that's, uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's that's like a, a very core tenet to like really diehard Christianity is like shame at your sins. And these people are utterly shameless. Like yeah. that's that's the whole point. They and, everything they do is natural. It's a part of life. It's a part of their culture and their belief system. There's no shame to be had. But Howie feels the shame at having to witness it. He feel like he vicariously like carries their shame in a weird yeah, way. Yeah, and by pairing it with the snails, it gives the rest of the sexual scenes kind of a grotesque vibe in a way even if it's just an undercurrent um because we're in a lot of ways seeing it through howie's eyes and seeing his disgust at it yeah his disgust for sure like how you as a viewer choose to interpret it i think is is very up in the air because i mean that's the thing about like animals is animals don't have animals don't have shame they they'll fuck in front of anybody because they have no concept of shame, you know, so seeing the snails kind of like writhing over each other while we also see like these uh, these people, you know, just fucking out in a field is like, in a way, it's the most natural thing possible. But, ooh, not to Howie, not to Sergeant Howie, like that is that shit is it is grotesque. It's an affront. And I, that's what I like about Christopher Lee's monologue at that time, too, because I, he quotes like Walt Whitman or something, and he says like I could I could turn and live with the animals or something to to that effect, and says that like because animals don't fall and pray before and or like cower before God or something like that. On on that subject, what I do think is interesting is like Howie's first meeting, like official meeting with with Lord Summerisle, like at his mansion. And he tells him sort of about, like, the history of the island, about, like, how his grandfather bought it. And his grandfather was, like, an agriculturalist who, through a combination of, like, the the particular, like, warm gulf stream that came through the island with, like, the volcanic soil, was able to make 
fruits and vegetables grow on that island that wouldn't normally grow elsewhere and like the sort of for lack of a better term serfs that he had under him who were working the island he sort of reinstated the idea like the pagan ideas of like the gods of the harvest and the gods of nature and stuff the like that. The old gods. The old gods to to turn the work that they were doing on the island into sort of an ecstatic religious experience. Whereas he himself as a scientist didn't necessarily, like he knew that the reason the plants were, gr- the, the fruits and vegetables were growing there was because like the island was, had a, you know, was special in terms of like the natural conditions that were there that were more suited to, to growing crops there. But that then, you know, he brought his son up to, sort of carry on that tradition and then in turn Christopher Lee as well. So I I like that there's sort of this duplicitous aspect of Lord Summer Isle where like he acknowledges that history and you don't know whether he himself really believes in the pagan stuff or if he's just putting on a show for his people. I think or by the end you do, or if it's or if it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's some of both, but I think that even the way he behaves at the end is kind of like with that conversation as context, kind of suggests that he's putting on more of a show than anything else. Well, that's the thing. That's like, the vibe he is that I get from Lord yeah. Summer Isle. Mm-hmm. He is at a point of pure power on the island he literally owns the island so it's very reasonable to say he leans into it yeah because there is a point of power and privilege to that that you know he wouldn't want to ever give up one of my one of my favorite lines in the movie is uh, in that conversation when he's talking about how, you know, his father brought him up the same way and how he kind of incredulously is like, he brought you up as a pagan. Like, we, he spits it with disgust and Christopher Lee just kind of turns to him and smiles. He's like, oh yeah, as a heathen, conceivably, but hopefully not an unenlightened one. Love that. Yeah, it's uh, like, that's that's one of my favorite lines in the movie. It's like, there's a... Uh, you know, it's not, he's not doing what he does out of pure blind devotion or, or religious conviction. You know, there's, there's a heavily calculated aspect to what he's doing. And as we see by the end, like that is certainly the case. Do we want to start talking about like the third act of the film? Sure. I think what's interesting about this movie is it's really hard to spoil like on the cover itself, yeah. there's a burning wicker man. The movie is called The Wicker Man. Yeah. yeah. You're expecting a wicker man. Yeah. Also, you know, fucking spoilers for spoilers for a 50-year-old movie, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. third, I've never seen it before. So, yeah, you know. it's true. And, you know, like this is kind of a I, – I do think this is kind of a slept-on film uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, the, the third act – is where I would say that it gets really creepy. I think that's where the like the majority of like the horror 
aspects of of it come in and and I think worth noting too is that uh when when the film was written it was written by um Anthony Schaefer I believe is his name and he he very deliberately wanted to make a horror film that was not violent because he felt at the time that like horror films relied too heavily on violence and gore. I think in hindsight that's kind of funny considering that like considering how violent and gory horror films are now as compared to what <laughs> they were in like the early 1970s pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre, pre-Alien, but I I think that he in his script achieved that pretty fucking well. Uh, because I think that a lot of the third act is, is very unsettling and, and creepy without any, like, ex- we'll say extreme violence. He does, uh, uh, how he does knock out the, the landlord at the inn and steal his costume. It's a little comical, though. It's pretty, it's pretty funny, because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just, like, takes, like, a candle, like, a candlestick and just, like, knocks him over the head with it, and the dude just goes, eh. Well, it's, well, he's it, dressed it, it, up like the fool, yes. too, yeah, yeah, well, so well, it's very... Punchy, yeah, like, like, yeah. uh, Polnicella, the, the whole... The, the the heart of slapstick comedy, uh, you know, like from uh, going back as far as La Commedia dell'arte, uh, you know, there is all the the archetypes of um, of stage play there. And, uh, you know, the, the most notable being, you know, Punch and Judy shows, Polnicella, Punchy, you know, all goes back to Polnicella. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. The, the fool. And you would get bopped on the head and people will go, ha ha. And steals his costume. Mm-hmm. And it's it's great because up until that point. During that day, during the, 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 the first day of May, um, he's going around the town investigating and looking, like, looking for this girl. And he's like, fuck it. You know what? Yo, you fuckers trashed my plane. I'm going to tear every house up looking for this yeah, girl. Yeah, I'm going to look in and, every single house on the island. I'm going to find this girl. Because at this point, he has deduced from his research that Rowan Morrison is actually still alive and that she's going to be sacrificed for harvest. So he's got to find her before that happens. And there's there's a bunch of great sequences here uh that i, I don't want to pass up yeah i don't i don't, don't want to get ahead of um uh one of which being um him opening a door and opening a cabinet and there being a young girl in there and she falls to the floor and you're like oh shit they were just hiding her in a fucking closet like that got me i was just like wait fucking really like what and and then when she smiles and like gets up and it's just like some young girl like playing a prank She's playing just Mm-hmm. fucking josh and him yeah i love that uh and, and like without context it's a little weird because it's like well how would she know or whatever but of course you know it's part of it but uh then also he he goes and he looks he looks in all these coffins he goes to like the mortuary mm-hmm. and he opens one up but he he hurts his finger on one of them like closing it and it's it's very slapstick comedy and and they do this a couple of times where they set it up where they do have him like engaged in a little bit of like punch and Judy sort of stuff where he gets knocked around. Yeah. And like it's for our benefit. Well, and he finds the uh, we we'd be remiss to not mention that he uh, one in one of the dudes houses that he looks and he finds the that dude's costume, the salmon of knowledge. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it was the fishing shop too, which would make sense. Yeah. It was like, oh yeah, that that like the in fishery. there. That's my costume, the salmon of knowledge. <laughs> no elaboration on that. Yeah, which, no. 
no need. No, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it it's very Dark Souls esque. You know, yeah. like this one miscellaneous, like weird creature in the back that has no explanation. None's ever given. None is ever needed. Build your own lore on who the salmon of knowledge is. I love that. Like, you know, like honestly though, tell tell me you wouldn't see like the salmon of knowledge like in a in a in a Miyazaki game. Like in a Hidetaka yeah, Miyazaki game, right? Like, you know, like, well, I mean, the, like, pot the, like is, the Pot Noble is... The Pot Noble, Sekiro, Noble in Sekiro yeah, is basically yeah, exactly. the, the, the salmon of knowledge, if you think about the, it. The, the, the carp of knowledge, yeah, yeah basically. For our, our, our listeners who, who aren't familiar with Sekiro, uh, the, play it. the... Yeah, just play it. It's a great game. But, like, if you're not... Not everyone plays video games, but uh, it, it, the Pot Noble is uh, a strange man you find, like, inside of a pot who like sells things by reaching his arm out of the pot but and he wants more than anything to become a carp no so he's gathering yeah. scales yeah, that's he's right gathering scales and eventually he does become, become a carp. carp you know good for him good for him um <laughs> i we we mentioned them like trashing his plane i do think one of the kind of like eerier images uh is like when he's out like trying to get the the plane working and we see like along the harbor like the the wall and just like gradually more people poke their heads up over the wall but they're all wearing like animal masks um i think as as an image it's it's very spooky especially because like we've seen all of these people previously in the movie as like you know just sort of jovial townsfolk like a little bit weird and and kooky and whatever and like they're pagans and whatnot but like the animal masks are 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 very spooky we've all seen like the photographs of like vintage halloween costumes for sure yeah and how they are way scarier than modern halloween costumes and And this is a great example and halloween is a a fucking pagan holiday bingo but it's it's a lot of the same it's like weird rabbit masks that are made of like paper mache that are so much scarier than any creepy clown mask you can get at halloween uh, Spirit Halloween or and whatever. I mean, just like look at all of the movies that have you know done shit like that. Like your next this movie like laid you know so much groundwork for so many horror movies that followed. Oh, I I want to talk about the Hand of Glory too because I think that I I more like the Hand of Gory. <laughs> uh, he after he uh, searches the whole town, he's he goes back to the to the inn and he's like, "I'm gonna take a nap. <laughs> don't don't disturb me." But then he leaves the door to his room open, and we hear like the landlord and his daughter like kind of uh, like talking. It's like, oh. Where we're gonna like do? Are we sure we want to use this? Like, do we want to use? Like, he might sleep for a whole week or whatever. And he, like, we see that he's actually awake and like pretending to be asleep. And I love that. Like, we see them coming up the stairs, and we can see that the landlord is holding something, but don't see what it is until after they've left it on his bedside table. He wakes up and looks at it, and it's it's a hand of glory, which is like an old occult object. It's like the left hand. If my lore on this is correct, I think it's the the left hand of a criminal who has been hanged and the hand has been coated in wax made from fat 
the fat from his own body and it's lit like a candle. Holy shit, that's uh, extremely cool. I've never heard of this. Yeah, I didn't realize that. It's, yeah. an, it's, Me an actual, it's an actual thing. There's a museum. Like, you can, I just thought it was a dope prop. They actually exist. Uh, it's called the Hand of Glory. It's very cool. <laughs> um, it's metal as fuck. It's uh, yeah. In the lore, it's a it's a powerful occult object that if you there's there's different like lore behind it and whatnot. But stuff like if you light it and you're holding it, like it makes you invisible, so you can pass without being seen, or you can use it to like paralyze people. Like there's a couple of museums where you can see like actual real ones. Which Whoa. is which is fucking cool, but uh, yeah. Lot. So they so they leave. So they they literally just leave like a human hand with like the fingers burning fingies uh, on <laughs> on his on his bedside table. He's got some sizzling fingies. I gotta tell you, it looks like a real hand. Like yeah. they have uh, the prop was good. We don't see much of it. Prop. He just like wakes up and sees it. And he like knocks it on. But the like floor. you can see like yeah. the like the shot of it on the floor. Um, you can see like how the the skin is like weathered and dry. Like, it looks really yeah. good. And, like, maybe it's on old film, so, like, there's, you know, the, the blur, you know, the kind of... I mean, there's no way it was a real human hand, no, like, but like it's hides, a good But, but it's it, a good it looks it's great. Prop, it looks like yeah. it's been cured, specifically. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it, it's impressive. So, yeah, he uh, he proceeds imme- to immediately bonk uh, the, the, the innkeeper on the head, as we have uh, previously as getting, mentioned. As he's getting into his his costume. Which is so great, because he's dressed fool. as Punch, and he gives him a bonk on the back yep. of the head. It's yeah. perfect. <laughs> and he falls over. And, and it's funny, as it should be, he's knocking over Punch. It's perfect. Mm. Yeah, he, he bops him, and he puts on the costume, which so many movies have this to thank for i mean i'm i'm sure maybe it's been done before this even like i'm sure like that's it's like a, it's probably shakespearean like you I know mean, like yeah, our hero like, our hero has to like dress up in the garb of his enemies but it's an archetypical moment i wouldn't call it a cliche but i mean it is now well i mean like the this film is not by any means the first to to touch a lot of this material but it is one of the the earlier more notable examples to put this kind of stuff on film Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I, I do think that its lineage to other horror films is, is significant. But yes, he he puts on the, the costume of the fool and he joins the procession uh, of you know people in their their costumes, their animal masks, the salmon of knowledge, um, knowledge, knowledge. One of the guys is the is the dude who was dry humping the landlord's daughter at the beginning is the uh, the hobby horse. Uh, which uh, does not look like a horse. Oh, it is uh, the same guy. That's great because he's the hobby horse, as it's described in the book, uh, is the one who's going after all the ladies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. And he's going after the lady in that, so that makes sense. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's like this this big like fake horse thing, and it has a, a, a sort of puppet mouth. It like clacks together. It's great. Yeah. Uh, it uh, once again does not look like a horse. It has like tusks. It looks more like a dragon. Uh, but it's a it's a great prop. Well, it's supposed course, to be a man, uh, a strange man horse beast that's horny. Yeah. Like is the is the deep lore on it? So like you know it, yeah. it looks bestial. A horny a horny man horse. Uh, and of course, the procession is led by Christopher Lee, who has donned the aspect of the man woman trans icon uh, Christopher trans Lee. Trans icon Christopher Lee. <laughs> he's got a great wig and a great dress, and he's prancing around with a with a, a sickle. Um, my my man Christopher Lee can do whatever he wants. I, I'll I'll say it publicly. Like like I uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a weird way to. I'm, I don't need to get on a 
Get are, you, are you horny for Christopher Lee? Is that what you're saying? I mean, y'all aren't. Uh, but, <laughs> a little bit. I'm I mean, straight. Yeah. I'm a little horny for Christopher yeah, every, Lee. Yeah, I think everyone should be a little horny for Christopher Lee, let's be real. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not trying to, like, get up on my hobby horse about it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, no, I, I think it's great because um, that character is supposed to be, like, I believe the Temptress, if I understand correctly, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's an archaic well, yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an androgynous, simultaneously male and female aspect, you know. Uh, the, the thing that always gets me about that whole scene is uh, Christopher Lee's fucking Chuck Taylors. He's wearing fucking Converse when he's dancing around. He is? I can, I can never not notice oh, them. Oh my god. Yeah, Christopher Lee's fucking Chuck Taylors <laughs> as he's dancing around in a wig. Um, but it's, it's great. The, the procession goes on for a little while. And they finally end up at the beach. I like I like that Christopher Lee is like getting on to the uh, protagonist dressed as the fool for not dancing enough, and he's like trying. Yeah, to, like, oh man, that's more. great. He's like he's like yeah, you're the. He's he's still. I we we learn that he knows that Howie is has stolen the costume, but he's still pretending that's the innkeeper, and he's like he's like dance more you're the fool fucking cut a caper (laughs) at one point well because once again our protagonist is allergic to fun so like he's dressed (laughs) as the fool but he's doing a very half-hearted job and christopher lee is like as they're dancing he's like scolding him he's like dance Dance more! You're, you're the fool! Play the fool! <laughs> you can't even keep rhythm. Like, yeah. everyone's moving to the beat, swaying back and forth, and he's, like, going in the opposite direction. Yep. Before we get into the beach, uh, I love the sequence with the swords. The the swords. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where great they're set up kind of like the Star of David or whatever. Yeah, the um, the six swordsmen who like cross it's the pentacle. Swords. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's I mean, it is it is the star of David, but that is also like a like an occult. Symbol. Well, it, it's yeah, it's even more archaic. You know, like yeah. as like the pentacle, like as like you know the five pointed star. And well, it's it's a it's specifically the six, six pointed point, star, six point star. Of, the, of the two triangles together. Like it is it is the star of David, right? But like I said, like it's also it is also a symbol of magic. Mm. Uh, in this in this. Uh, context it's supposed to it's the symbol of the sun uh because they worship the god of the sun um but like yeah there's the where they go to like the the henge the the little miniature stone henge and the the swords the swordsmen like cross their swords and like everybody has to go through and like put their heads inside the swords and like dip out that's a it's a very tense scene because like christopher lee like shoves Howie into the line is like, oh, you know, everybody has to go through. It's a game of chance. So it's like, oh, is because in some of his reading in the books, it's like, oh, in some sacrifices, the swordsmen were the one who like kill the sacrifice. Um, so you don't know if he's going to get his head chopped off when he sticks it through there. And the, you know, according judging by the movie's runtime at that point, it's very believable that they would They'd just fucking kill him off there and burn him in the wicker, man. That'd be it. I mean, that's that's where my head was at. So I was just like, you know, they 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 could kill him here. Like, uh, so the tension was pretty real for me. Um, and so when he gets through and nothing happens, um, there's a sense of relief. And then someone else goes through and shing, like their their head comes off. I was I was pretty surprised they were going to do that because again like the movie's called wicker man and our protagonist is the only character we know so i was like whoa holy shit 
And there's a great, there's a great reveal where uh, someone, a young girl comes out from underneath the costume and it was a false head. It was a yeah. child wearing, like, like uh, dressed as, a, like as a an big, adult. Like with a, a big horse head or something. Yeah. Like a big animal. And so no, yeah. no head was under the mask when they chop it off. It's, it's fantastic. And it, it, it really is like well-played tension. I, uh, I wasn't expecting it and I, and I wasn't expecting the, 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 the turnaround after. So yeah, yeah well, well, great, great sequence. Well, I think it's time to talk about the final bit of the film, yeah. which is uh, arguably the, the the most memorable. Harrowing. Uh, yeah, so they get down to the beach, and it's revealed that, hey, he was right. Rowan is still alive. They see her. He sees her, you know, in a, in a white dress with, like, a, a flowered garland on her head, and she's tied up, and he runs to her and, like, shoves some people out of the way and frees her, and she's like, oh, please save me, Mr. Policeman. But uh, after a brief chase, it's revealed that it's all a ruse. Well, she has led him to Christopher Lee, who is waiting. I love I love during how during the chase he takes her crown. Is they're like running through this really cool cavern. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he takes her crown and he throws it to the left into the water, and they go to the right. That was a really clever move on his yeah. part. And once again, like when you have your, I, I talk about this a lot, but when you have your protagonist do something smart like that, it, it's a great point of relatability. Yeah. And it made me like kind of like the character a little bit and be like, yeah, he's just he's doing the noble thing. He's doing what's right, and he's throwing the crown. And taking yeah, it off the other direction. As it's smart. Of, it's a as, smart move. As much of a fuddy-duddy as he has been the entire movie, like, his intentions are pure. He's there to figure out what happened to this young girl who he believes has been murdered and then realizes, no, is going to be murdered. So, like, he is he is a virtuous, noble character, even though he is a buzzkill a buzz <laughs> stick in the mud. Yeah, he's, a, he's a shit, uh, but he's a good man. <laughs> But well, and that's and that's what makes the final scene so uh, devastating. Yeah, is you know she she leads him out and into the waiting arms of Christopher Lee and all the townspeople who reveal, hey, this whole thing was a fucking game. You are the sacrifice. We brought you here specifically because you represent the king. You are a, a representative of the law. You are a virgin. You came here of your own free will. You played the fool. So you are our most worthy sacrifice to ensure that our harvest this year is good. Because that's another thing that we learned is that the previous year's crops withered and died. It was a bad harvest. Which I like because it it adds some believability to the fact that like this isn't something that they they don't they don't lure somebody to the island and murder them every single year. It's like normally they just do their normal rituals, sacrifice some animals, whatever. But this year, because the last harvest failed, they have to do something more extreme. So they set up this very elaborate ruse to lure him specifically here and led him on a wild goose chase as they say the the hunter leading the hunted so they take him and burn him in a giant wicker man and that's why the movie's called the wicker man and who boy that last scene is 
really fucking powerful and not a good time well, at he all. He says everything right leading up to it. Like, they gave him a moment to just speak. And he says, like, look, you know, like, if if your, cro- and if your crops don't come again, you know, like, next year, it'll be you. And he points at Christopher Lee. He, cra- yeah. he points at Lord Summer Isle and, and says, like, it'll be you, you next year. Do you really believe this? And this is why I think he's he he does because he says yes, and and he says it with such earnestness with the whole town there. And also, oh, see, in that moment, I feel like he's I feel like Christopher Lee is is playing a part in the way that he says that he's like I know that it will work that the crops will bloom. It's like he is he. I feel like he's playing. He's doubling for, down. Yeah. yeah, I feel like he's pl- like. There's there's probably a part of him that believes it for sure, but like I think that for Christopher Lee, a large portion of this is it's the show for the townspeople because he do, I think he does believe that the failed crops were a fluke that they'll be they'll be fine again this year. Last year was just a bad year, and uh, if we sacrifice somebody, then you know it'll restore the faith of the people. That's the impression I get, but I like that it's not really explicitly said one way or another. I think there's, I think there's a mixture of the two, you know, because Christopher Lee, you know, Lord Summerall does self-identify as a heathen, but not an unenlightened one. One of the most chilling moments for me in this movie is when after they've sort of like they've stripped him of his of of his clothes and dressed him in the white gown and they've tied him up and they're leading him up onto the cliff. And as they come over the hill before we see what he sees, like it's it pun, we get a punch in on his face and he's just like, Oh God. Oh Jesus Christ. Like the, just like the instant, like fear and terror that he, and then we cut to like this gigantic, wooden effigy of like a man with like uh farm animals like inside it and stuff yeah. just like this big chamber and it's like he comes over that hill and sees it and he knows what's in store for him immediately and he is afraid yeah well i mean it's, a, it's like a staunch christian the idea yeah. of being used as like a fuel for another god is vile it's yeah. it's a it's a hellish epiphany and uh well, and, and also like and how many christian saints and martyrs have been burned right yeah joan of arc you know and sure, sure. and like so many others like how many times throughout history have christians been burned you know and and christopher lee even says it's like because because how is like you know, I I believe in res I believe in in the resurrection. You know, I I believe in in life eternal as offered by Jesus Christ. And Christopher Lee is like, well, that's good because then you are gonna get something that so few have. You are gonna get a martyr's death, mm-hmm. and like it's it's true. a win win, really, <laughs> right? And and like it's true, he does receive a martyr's death, but that doesn't make the reality of it any less horrifying yeah mm-hmm. like well, when he comes over that hill and realizes oh fuck i'm about to be burned to death in a giant wicker man yeah one of the the most horrifying aspects and i think one of the most well done aspects is all of the farm animals in the wicker man it's something that's yeah rarely mentioned but all these animals being within there puts him on the level of animals you know, and it kind of goes full circle with how 
the tribe view humanity. Mm. In addition, when the Wicker Man is being burnt, you get all these horrifying screams and wails of animals. Of the animals, just yeah. almost deafening. Um, and I think that, in addition to the Wicker Man burning, makes it all the more horrifying. Well, and that, like, as they light the fire, like, all the townspeople start singing one of their songs, and Howie starts, like, trying to drown them out, like, starts singing, like, a hymn, and still, like, it's, like, he tries, he tries to, like, go to his death showing no fear, but still dies screaming. And, like as all of these other people are like sort of joyously singing and like our harvest is gonna be fucking good this year we did it guys <laughs> the crops are gonna be good you know and uh i think that's a thing that like a lot of the 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 audiences who saw this movie when it came out were expecting is that like at the last moment like more police would come in and like save Howie and like swoop in and like the cavalry's here and everything's okay. There's only one god on the machine. There's only one Deus Ex Machina here yeah. and it is the Wicker Man. Yeah. That is the like, god on the machine in like, the scenario. Nope. Like yeah. It's like nope. No police of... are gonna show up. Nothing else. Yeah. No Howie uh, Sergeant Howie dies screaming inside the wicker man as the, all of the inhabitants of summer isle uh joyously celebrate their their may day ritual as the the sun sets and that that's the fucking movie and uh it is it is a uh depending on which side you're on it is uh it is a pretty fucking bleak ending <laughs> At the same time, you know, if you're if you're on the pagan side, the nasty Christian man got his comeuppance, and <laughs> the harvest is going to be good. Well, that's that that's one of the things that I I do appreciate about the movies. There's not like an epilogue or something no. where like we see that like next year's harvest was good. Like man. the sacrifice worked Dude, in the like, moment. Just, I, I felt like I felt as blue balled as like our protagonist. Like, uh, like the credit the credits roll. Like, the, we see from the back an absolutely incredible shot. Gorgeous of shot. The, of the Wicker Man. Yeah, as it so burns, pretty. collapsing. Oh, as it the collapses. way, like, it falls yeah. out of the shot. Like, it looks like a like a man, like, tired, you know? Like, yeah. relaxing his shoulders and falling and dying. And it it it's so cool that, like, it, it mirrors, like, our protagonist inside of it, like, falling and dying as well. Like, yeah. ugh, ugh, so falls, good. Falls to reveal the setting sun behind it that we slowly zoom in on as the credits roll. The gods, the god yeah, of the sun. That's the, the god of the sun. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the movie both starts and ends with this, like, carved wooden aspect of, like, the sun, like, the smiling sun. Um, you know that that's what it was all for. It was a sacrifice to the god of the sun and the goddess of the of the orchards. And uh, did it work? We don't know. That's not really important because uh, <laughs> the the move the movie's about sacrifice. Yeah. Um. In the moment, I felt kind of blue balled, like a protagonist, uh, as I said. Uh, I was kind of expecting to find out like whether the harvest was good or not next year. But in hindsight, after a moment of thought, yeah, I prefer. Um, and, I, and, I, and I was going to bring this up before you, you mentioned your your piece. Um, I'm I am glad. I am glad that they don't because it would 
essentially make clear who the villain is. I mean, they are, like, committing murder. Like, they, they are bad. But, like, you don't want to make, like, paganism or Christianity the villain. Well, that's the thing. Is like, showing- like whether like these pagans, these Christians, etc. But like uh, by by showing the harvest at the end of the year, you you do that. And uh, so I, I do I do appreciate like that the movie ends ends. I think where it does yeah, need to. So so much of the movie is the, is. The but goddamn it, I do want to know. I do want to know how the harvest was. Right? What happens? Ah, I, like honestly, what what would happen either way is like either uh, either Lord Sumrail would be fine. Or um, uh, there would be a horrible harvest. Like the, it would there be a horrible harvest, and Lord Summerisle would use his his fucking ridiculous income to just get out of there. Either way, he's fine. Well, I mean, I think mm. I think in larger scale, it's like this is this is kind of like a last ditch effort. It's like after this, either Summerisle continues to prosper or it collapses. Like, the whole community, the island, is built around these beliefs, so they've made this grand sacrifice. Either it works, and they go back to their normal way of life, or it doesn't work, and everything falls apart. But that's not what the movie's about, you know? Like, you can speculate about it, you can think about it, it's interesting to bring up, but that's that's not the point of the movie and i think i think it's good that we don't see it because as you say like the story is like the struggle the back and forth between like christianity and paganism and to see whether the harvest is successful is making a would be making a definitive statement one way or another if the harvest is good then god loses if the harvest fails, then God wins, and that's you don't want either one of those. You don't frankly. want either one of them, and it would strip the horror a little bit. Yeah, yes, I it agree. Would. I agree. Also, what, what if the harvest is just kind of like all right? Because if if the harvest is good, also <laughs> it's like okay, it's an okay harvest. <laughs> like the thing is, like the, if the harvest is good, then it justifies Howie's death. And the film shouldn't do that. No, it shouldn't. It absolutely it shouldn't. It shouldn't be. Yeah. Like, if the harvest is good, then it's like, oh, well, Howie died so that, like, their sacrifice worked. They had a good harvest. And I can just, I can I can really see, like, that pissing off audiences. Because, like, it certainly, it still has me, like, god damn it, I want to know. You know, like, it's it's got me, like, yeah. you know, on the edge of my seat, you know, about it. And uh, I really want, I was expecting it to the degree where, like, when he says, like, what about next year? When he says that to, to Lord Summerall, when he points at him, he says that. I remember like turning to you guys and saying, "Hey, I can't wait for that shot of like seeing what the harvest is like during the credits." Like I said that. I said that during the fucking movie. It's like I was so ready to see that. I so needed yeah, to see it. And they don't do. And it. And they don't. They 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 cut after his death. And and they should. And I I, I on academically I I know they should. Damn it! I want to know. I want to know. Like what happens? And it, we'll it's great. It, it, I've it's read a good thing. I read somewhere that the studio was really upset at the ending as well. I'm sure modern, and, most yeah, audiences they, would be. For the they same actually reason. wanted them to reshoot where it starts raining while he's in the Wicker Man and puts it out. Oh, that would have sucked, bro. That would have been such a and bad ending. Take, he gets out. And you want to take. You want to take like your fucking explode, like it's you not wanna, explosion, you but it's like remove the entire the climax. gravitas of the. Of you want the to film. L- literally raining on everyone's parade <laughs> by doing that. Wow. Yeah. So glad they didn't. Yeah. So glad. Oh my god, could you imagine? Wow, that would have been that would have sucked. Yeah. Well, you know, like like I mentioned earlier, like the studio hated this movie. 
audiences hated this movie. It did not do well when it came out, but uh, it has uh, it has earned its laurels in the decades uh, since. Thank um, God. Speaking of laurels, are y'all are y'all ready to rate? Yes. Yeah. Uh, ready to I'll, rest on mine. I'll start. Probably no surprise, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of my favorite horror films of all time. I I deeply love this film uh, in all of its quirky weirdness, uh, and uh, for me, it's it's an easy five out of five, no question. Uh, but that being said, I can see why it might not necessarily be everybody's jam, but it sure is my jam. The piggies in the wicker man hmm. weren't the only bacon made that day <laughs> i'm talking a cab folks five out of five. Oh my god <laughs> no but really uh this is one of the greatest <laughs> horror movies of all time oh my god um a true classic yeah what more can be said the music is so perfect. Corn it's... rigs and barley rigs and <laughs> corn rigs are bonnie. <laughs> it's it's a perfect example of like music that on its surface is really funny, but the more you like listen closely, the more horrifying it gets. Corn rigs is the greatest <coughs> bop, greatest film bop of all time. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> excellent stuff. Corn rigs untouched. Five out of five, easy. Cleveman. I'm, I'm a ditto that. Uh, I would. I'd be remiss to give it anything less. I think. I'm gonna definitely need to. I think my opinion on this will will change and develop as I have more time to think about it. I'm very hot off of this one, but in the moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna go along go along with y'all on this one. I do. I do think it's worth mentioning uh, and round, rounding back to how so many of those <coughs> scenes that we had mentioned earlier uh, have that much more context. Uh, by the end, him peeking out the window and seeing everything very obviously makes sense. They would want him. They wanted him to see everything, the hair and uh, all the rest of it. Like it's all by design, as they say. And I, I do, I do think that's really cool. Um, and it really, it really had me uh, strung along. Yeah, if he'd gone and fucked the landlord's daughter, he would no longer have all, been virginal. All so my man, he, all my man had have, to do was bust, and he would have been fine. Would he he live. Been a, a worthy sacrifice then if he had busted. Yeah. Probably not. They would have had to find somebody else. But yeah. that is the moral of the Wicker Man: is if you have a chance to bust, you best. You, you best, best bust. It's life or death. Life or death. Gotta bust. Um, Segment. Yeah, well, I mean, we should first, of course, uh, <coughs> acknowledge that The Wicker Man is a golden pod. That's a unanimous perfect yeah. score from all of us. I am not surprised, but I am also glad there was a part of me that went into this being like, man, I love this movie, but I wouldn't be surprised if Ben and or Cleveland did not love it as much as I did, and that would be okay. But I'm glad that we... Uh, that we are unanimous on this one because uh, the Wicker Man is certainly <laughs> deserving of the perfect score that it has received from us. So uh, yeah, the Wicker Man, five out of five. Uh, Cord rigs and binkies and harleys on rigs and that's corn rigs are Bonnie. What were we that, talking song, about? that song is just like interspersed at like random points throughout the movie <laughs> and it's so fucking good and it, 
like in preparation of watching this movie like that song has been stuck in my head for like the last couple of weeks i knew it was coming up and i've just been like yeah we're watching the wicker man soon corn rigs and barley rigs and... Uh, <laughs> anyway uh yeah your segment that you wanted to do you wanted to make some predictions, <laughs> Got some predictions. About, All right. uh, about the remake so don't tell me if i'm right or wrong we're gonna find out next week of course not um I, I, I think things that they could screw up uh off of this movie one make it his daughter uh, that's, that's the first one. Um, because I, I had that sort of thought going into this one being like, is he looking for his daughter or something? And that, and I'm, and I was so grateful it wasn't that watching this movie. So I'm going mean, to, the first thing I think he could do to ruin well, yeah, this is to make it his daughter. daughter. He wouldn't be a virgin. This is true. Also, um, yeah, so they're going to do that. Um, they're going to give us a shot of the entire island. That's another thing I'm predicting. I think that they're going to, they, they're not going to be able to resist and we're going to get dumb matte painting. Uh, I mean, I love matte paintings, but th- this one's going to be dumb. It's going to be a dumb matte painting, uh, where we see the whole island. We, we can see the entire damn thing and there's some like shining bop, bop, bop music like behind it. I think that, um, our protagonist, uh, isn't going to be like a staunch Christian or anything else like that. He's just going to be some guy. They're definitely not going to have the same kind of pacing. So it, there's going to be more overt stuff, which is going to ruin it because it's going to make the protagonist make less sense um, because the, the protagonist isn't going to be able to have a slow build, but he's still going to have to for the sake of the plot. So he's going to see things that are really fucked up happen and not really do anything about it. And it's going to be really awful. Th- those are some of my thoughts. Um, I'm just excited to see Nick Cage be Nick Cage because I love Nick Cage. Hell yeah, man. Well, <laughs> next week. Part two of our podversary, original versus remake, we are, of course, going to be talking about the remake of The Wicker Man starring Nicolas Cage. As I said at the beginning, it is a very different film that I love for very different reasons than this one. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I'm excited. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, certainly a film with a very different tone, and I think that it will uh, make the tone of our podcast very different as well so uh won't you come back and join us next week when we talk about the the wicker man remake it's gonna be a good time ben had to order a dvd for us to get the right version of this we'll we'll talk more about that on the episode uh but uh more on that later anyway now it's time for the sponsor shelf this episode was brought to you by this handful of corn I found in my pocket. That's perfect! <laughs> Isn't it just perfect? This episode was brought to you by corn rigs. And barley rigs. And barley rigs. <laughs> Deep in my pocket, corn rigs and barley rigs. rigs and, and corn, corn rigs in my bunny. pocket. Corn bits in your mouth will taste like my pocket. <laughs> wow, that literally could not have been a better sponsor for this episode. Yeah, what a, what Thank a, God. What a wonderful uh, surprise. Uh, providence from the Lord himself. Yes, the Wicker Lord. <laughs> the Wicker Lord. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. If you like the show and you've been with us for a long time, maybe if you've been with us for all four years that we've been doing the show, I can't believe it's been four years. That's fucking crazy. Um, the, the best way to show your love and appreciation is to leave us a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. But also, if you want to give us a little anniversary present, you can become a patron. 
at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod and subscribe to one of our uh, three reward tiers. Um, thanks to our honorary pod boys, Sam Simon and Sarah Morris, without whom this lovely show wouldn't be possible. Yeah. It would we be- can do things like buy, have to fucking buy uh, <laughs> Nicolas Cage's uh, Wicker Man. Because it has scenes in it that we need to get on DVD. Yeah, Yeah. DVD. Because we can't find literally anywhere else. Thanks, uh, Sam and Sarah, for for your support. And you can join them once again at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod. You can also follow us on Twitter at podpeoplepod. And check out our Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash podpeoplepod, where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. And you can also see... Our list of golden pods of our unanimous perfect rated films of which The Wicker Man is just the latest entry. So why don't you check that out? Um, I'm on Twitter at some spooky snake. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. And I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studios. We put out further progress on It Stares Back. Check it out. We're on Steam and Early Access. And you can also find us on Discord um, uh, under the same name. And... Uh, yeah, join our wonderful community, discuss the deep lore, have some fun, and hang out. Look at some cool art. You can also find my work uh, for Dread XP if you uh, um, uh, search their curator page on Steam. Um, also, go to their website. They do really cool uh, game news as well. I, I haven't really mentioned that part. We, we also do really cool game news and stuff. And uh, you can you can learn all sorts of cool things about the games industry. And, uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for... Uh, uh, more episodes of Spookware and uh, My Friendly Neighborhood, which is a pretty awesome Sesame Street sort of style game that's uh, pretty neat that's in production right now. So get get hype. Get hype about all that stuff. And uh, I uh, I love you. And uh, you you are a wonderful listener. And I, we, we appreciate you a whole, whole bunch. We sure do. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to those who have been with us all this time? We wow, four uh, years. We we sure do. Uh, we sure do love you. And hard to believe that we've been at this for four years. And we'll see how many more years this this ding dumb, dang this dumb little show goes. Uh, we we love you and appreciate you. This week it was the corn. Next week the bees. Time went by with careless heed Till tween the late and early With small persuasion she agreed To see me through the barley Corn rigs and barley rigs And corn rigs are bonnie I'll not forget that among the rigs with Annie The sky was blue, the wind was still The moon was shining clearly was all my own I loved her most sincerely 
I kissed her o'er and o'er again Among the rigs of barley Corn rigs and barley rigs And corn rigs are bonny 